We are in a series in Genesis 1 called In the Beginning. And we started by looking at the first verse of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth in order to make a temple in the desert, a place that he can dwell with us. And then last week we started what I'm calling some, some time of just ground clearing for our series. That there, when it comes to Genesis 1, it's a very famous passage. There's some controversy around it. So we just need to spend some time clearing the ground off so that we can actually see uh, what Genesis 1 has for us. So last week we started by looking at what Genesis 1 is, that it is an act of ancient communication into the creation narratives of the ancient Near East in order to draw them into the worship of God, the God who created and stands over everything. And this week we're going to look at what Genesis 1 is not, and then next week we're going to go back and look at Genesis 1, start really digging into the text to see what does it actually say, what are they trying to do, what is going on in Genesis 1. This week, we're going to look at a perceived tension that covers the ground uh, when we come to speak about Genesis 1. And this is a perceived tension that's between faith and science, or Genesis 1 and what we learn about uh, modern evolution from science. Specifically, in Genesis 1, we see that there are six days of creation. There's a day of rest, which is the seventh. But that God created, it took seven days. And uh, in modern science, what it teaches us is that we are here through a long period, a long process, sorry, a biological evolution that lasted billions and billions of years of extremely long process. And so this is a tension uh, if we're going to hold one or the other. They seem to be incompatible with each other. Now, you might be wondering, why are we talking about this? Well, there's two reasons. Like I said, I think it covers the ground uh, for us and we're not able to see clearly what Genesis 1 is. But this perceived tension also really affects people. I'm going to share a bit of my own story in understanding Genesis 1. I started taking my faith seriously when I was about 18 years old. And after a period of time, I went to uh, the University of Alberta for my undergrad degree. And uh, I was really excited about my faith at that time. But there was this undercurrent told to me by many people that if I went to a secular school, I was going to lose my faith, this exciting faith that was just growing in me. So I was given this book from my church library. I, I spent some time looking for the actual book and I couldn't uh, find it. So this one will have to do. But it was something along the lines that reinforced that there is a battle between the Bible and science, between Genesis 1 and evolution. And I had to choose a side. And this book was encouraging me to be uh, a Christian and prepare myself for this battle at university. I needed to choose the side of Genesis 1 and not believe specifically that people evolved from monkeys. That's the way that they put it. And then when I got to university, I also had this battle mentality reinforced. There was two classes that I took, one evolutionary psychology and another one in psychometrics, which is about measuring psychological data, where the teacher literally stood up in front of the class and just said, if you believe that there is a God, if you're a Christian, you're an idiot. Um, and science has proven that wrong. So this battle was reinforced that it's either uh, you know, evolution or it's the Bible in Genesis 1, both from a Christian perspective and when I was in university. And this tension, um, you know, this battle mentality uh, produced lots of 
frustration in me. I think when I was going to university, definitely I was on the side that I needed to choose the Bible. My faith was growing. I was excited about my relationship with Jesus, even though I didn't understand very much about it. And so I realized like I, I needed not to be taken in by modern science and walk away from God that way, but rather to double down on my belief of Christianity and therefore just be adamant that Genesis 1 was a literal and God actually did create in six days. And it caused me to mistrust science. And that's what I, I have did, done in my life and I know many other people that have gone that route. If there's a battle, we're gonna choose God and the Bible. Many of my friends chose the other side, that, that if there's a battle, especially if they were in the sciences, the overwhelming evidence for them that evolution happened. And if there's a battle and one of them has to win, they chose science and, and many of them walked away from their faith. And I was a campus pastor for, for 14 years in the lower mainland and I met students from all over Canada and all over the world. And I can tell you that this is a question that's going on for them and, and many of them do choose to leave their faith. Pew Research did a study of American youth uh, who walked away from their faith. And 49% of them said that science was a major reason. This battle between evolution and Genesis 1 was a major reason for them walking away from their faith. And so this battle is very real and it exists in our hearts and uh, in the lives, I'd say especially of young people, but of a lot of us as well. So we need to take some time to address it. So here is my big statement about this that the perceived tension between these two things, between Genesis 1 and evolution, exists because we assume the facts of modern science should align with the Bible. Or maybe another way of saying it is that the Bible is speaking about modern science and should speak into modern science. And so for, again, like I said, if, if that's the mentality we have, then Christians are gonna choose, you know, people who consider themselves serious Christians are gonna choose the Bible first. And they're gonna say all the scientific facts have to align with that. And if they don't, we are not gonna trust science. And many non-Christians would say the exact opposite. I, of course, science is true. Science is teaching us what's real about the world. So anything in the Bible that doesn't adhere to that, we're gonna throw away. And in fact, most of them are just gonna, we're gonna throw away the entire Bible because we assume the facts of the Bible or the science that we read in the Bible, the cosmology that we read there should align with modern science. But I would say the facts of modern science do not need to align with the Bible. That's the underpinning of everything I'm going to say, that the facts of modern science do not need to align with the Bible in order for us to have respect for both and to take both seriously. Because Genesis 1 is not trying to communicate modern scientific facts to us. That's not what it's doing. Rather, Genesis 1 is concerned with questions like, who are we? Where are we in the story? What is our world like? What's our place in it? And it does that in a way that would challenge and encourage ancient people first. It's speaking into their world, and only from their world does it speak to us. It is not directly addressing our modern assumptions about the world. Another way of saying this would be to say what we've already said, what I've outlined in this series, that Genesis 1 is an ancient act of communication into the other creation narratives of the ancient Near East. And it's trying to show us that back in the day, there is this person, there is this God, and he is a creator, and he created everything, and he's continuing to create in our world. And, he, and he's doing all of this so that he can make a space to dwell with us. That is the main message of Genesis 1, not science not trying to tell us something about modern science. So to proceed, we're gonna do three things. I'm gonna tell you three reasons why I think this is true. And then we're gonna talk about a warning. And finally, we're gonna end up with a way forward. So three whys, then a warning, 
and then a way forward. So three reasons why I think this is correct. Um, and, and I'm just gonna give a caveat at the very beginning. I am not a scientist. I would call myself a scientist. I'm not uh, someone who is trained, uh, overly trained in biology or in geology or any of the sciences. Although I, well, I have an arts degree and uh, I, I did take some science classes and I'd like you to know that I passed them, but this is not an area of expertise for me. I am instead gonna speak from my personal experience and from, you know, from the Bible. There's two ways that I really changed my mind about this battle mentality to the one that I hold currently. One was that I met Christians who were scientists people that were heavy into science and doing science and also found that they could love God's word and worship God. And they helped me lead me forward. And the second way is what I'm going to try to do today, which is that I read carefully through specifically Genesis 1. And I found that it doesn't speak to modern science. And, and that's the reasoning. I'm not going to approach this as a scientist. I'm going to approach it and looking at God's word in Genesis 1. So let's do that together. Three whys. The first is this, that Genesis is one is not concerned with our modern scientific question. Genesis one does not seem to be concerned with our modern scientific questions and way of looking at the world. So let's take a look at the text. Genesis one, day one. It reads, then God said, let there be light and there was light. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. There was evening and there was morning one day. Day one, God makes the light and separates it from darkness. Now day four, then God said that there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. And they will serve as signs for seasons and for days and years. They will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights and the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule over the night as well as the stars. God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, to rule the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. Evening came and then morning, the fourth day. So day one, we have light. Then it waits till day four to have the sun and the moon. So if we're thinking of this as modern people, we know that light comes from the sun and the moon. So how in the world could this happen? How could there be no light or light on day one, but no sun and moon till day four? This is a great question. And we'll wait till next week to answer it. This is a bit of a teaser for you to come back next week. All I'm trying to point out is that it doesn't share our modern assumptions about what the world is. Tim Mackey says it this way, in modern cosmology, light consists of photons, tiny packets of energy that behave like a wave and also like a particle. But this is not what light means in Genesis 1. It doesn't share our modern assumptions about what science says light is. In, in the light in Genesis 1.5 comes from God himself. Therefore, the sun and moons and stars are not on the scene yet. This reading in Genesis 1-5 is made clear by later biblical authors who understood that the light in Genesis 1 is God's glorious being emanating into the darkness to bring order. It is speaking about something else. It is speaking to ancient people in a very different way. They had no clue that light was photons. Uh, like Kind of like I don't have much of a clue about that because I'm not a scientist. But th to say that they're speaking into that mentality, not with a, an understanding of modern science. So modern science asks questions that are really important, like what, when did this happen? Or in what order? What is the nature of this thing? Is it a photon or not? Or how did light come about? How could you have photons without having 
the sun and the moon? Those are really important questions to ask. And all of us who have received any modern medical treatment, you know, for myself, I've had cancer uh, last year and I've received modern, modern medical treatment and it came about by people asking those questions. So those are really important and good questions, but they're not the questions answered in Genesis 1. It's not designed to ask, answer questions about photons. If we start ans asking those questions in Genesis 1, we're off on the wrong foot. We're asking the wrong questions to the right text. Genesis 1 is asking questions like, who are we? Where are we? What is our story? And where are we located in the story? And what is the nature of the person behind those story? And those are also important, very important questions that can't be answered by modern science. And modern science shouldn't be put on top of the Bible and vice versa. They're asking different types of questions. And if we bring the question about the nature of light and how there can be light uh, before the sun and the moon to Genesis 1, we're asking the wrong type of questions. It's like putting a square peg in a round hole. And when we see ourselves doing that, which we're, we often do when we come to the Bible, because like I said, it's an ancient text, we should be very quick to then be like Goldilocks in the story that we read a couple weeks ago, ago, Goldilocks and the Three Dinosaurs, where she slowly realizes she's in the wrong house. She's in the wrong story. She's asking the wrong questions. It's not a bear house. It's a dinosaur house. And so she leaves. And it should be the same for us. When we come with our modern scientific questions to Genesis and ancient texts, we should slowly, if we're going to read the text honestly, learn to see that that is not what Genesis 1 is all about. Okay, so that's number one. The second why. The order in Genesis 1 doesn't match the order in the creation narratives or other creation narratives in the Bible. The order in Genesis 1 doesn't match the other creation narratives in the Bible. So let's look at the order of creation in Genesis 1. Day 3. God said, Let the earth produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. It was so. The earth produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with the seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Evening came and then morning the third day. Day three, we got seeds and plants and trees. Now let's go to day six. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and they will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God and he created the male and female. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and was very good indeed. Evening came and then morning, the sixth day. So third day plants, sixth day people. Now let's just flip the page to Genesis 2, the very next uh, chapter in the Bible, and read another creation story and the order from that creation story, starting in verse 4. These are the records of the heavens and the earth according to their creation, or concerning their creation. At the same time the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet, had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. There's no plants, because there's no people to work them. But mists would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Then the Lord formed the man out of the dust from the ground, and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden, and in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So here we see the opposite, that there are people created first, then plants. So Genesis 1, we have plants first, then people. Genesis 2, just one chapter later, we have people first, and then plants. 
And if we zoom out even farther, we'll see that this is, uh, this is exacerbated even more. Genesis 1, day 3, we've got plants. Day 5, we've got fish and birds. Day 6, we have got land animals and people. So that seems to be the order. Genesis 2, we see a man created first, then a garden, then animals, and then a woman created after this. So the orders are different. They don't mesh together. And if we're taking them as, you know, ancient video camera footage, we're forced into a really awkward position because we're forced to say the chronology of one of them is incorrect. And then if that's our view of the Bible, that has to be correct about all of a science that we have, we're going to be forced to say maybe that the Bible is incorrect. Um, some people will say like, instead, they'll be like, man, these, these, authors of the Bible, they're idiots. Like, didn't they notice that the first one was different than the second? They should have changed one of them to make them all the same. But I would say they're not idiots. They're just ancient. They have different priorities than we do. Listen to what Regent Professor Ian Proven says. Chronology, the order of how things happened, is not an interest to the ancient authors, generally speaking. This bothers modern folks because we're taught to think of chronology as a big deal. We are science people. So for us, the order of something happening is really important. You've got to get that right. For the ancient authors, it's super low. It's not of interest to them. Chronology, he says, plays second fiddle in much of the ancient writing to issues of theme and significance and so on. So for them, the most important thing is theme and significance. Chronology is super low. You can reorganize things and it's not a big deal because they're talking about theme and significance. For us, if you mess with the chronology, then you're messing with the entire truth of the thing. But this is an invitation for us not to take our modern assumptions and put them onto the Bible. Instead, like I said last week, it's the invitation for us to take a flight in a time machine, that we are going back into an ancient culture with a different language, with different assumptions, and we need to approach the text with those assumptions that they had. So Genesis 1 is not wrong. It is the inspired word of God, but it's an ancient act of communication with different assumptions and different ordering and not concerned with chronology the way that we might be. And so maybe when we're, ask, we're asking it for ancient video footage, which is what we would want from the text, we're just asking the wrong question. We're in the wrong story. Once again, we find ourselves there. So that's the second why. The third why is this, that Genesis 1 clearly speaks in an ancient view of the cosmos, which we know to be incorrect today. Genesis 1 clearly speaks into an ancient view of the cosmos, which we know to be incorrect today. Let's look at Genesis 1 verse 6 as an example. It says, Then God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. This word expanse has a long history of interpretation. People don't know what to do with it, so they've called it an expanse. Some have called it a vault. Some have called it a firmament, which I'm not 100% certain what that means, uh, or a dome. Uh, because the, the Hebrew word is rakia. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project says this, a, the rakia is a solid blue dome above the land, above which there are presumed to be waters. So in the ancient view of the world, uh, God has separated, remember, the chaos waters out. And you look down, you see the blue oceans or the, the, the lakes around you. And you look up and you see blue in the sky. And rain comes down from the, from the sky as well. So you're assuming that there's something there holding back the chaos waters. And so this word rakia is used of like a metalsmith, that they would hammer out these bronze bowls. The idea is that God did the same for our, the roof of our world, that there is something um, very real there, very material there, uh, hard, that is holding back the water from coming down. 
And a couple chapters later in Genesis 7, it references this in the story of Noah, that God opens, it says, the windows of the rakia, the windows of the skies, and, and allows the water to come down. And if we're remembering back to what Genesis 1 is, a creation story where God is pulling the chaos waters away and separating them, here he's allowing, in, in the story of Noah, he's allowing the chaos waters to come down. It's a decreation story because of the evil in the world, and God will create again. But this is, the, this is the worldview of the ancient people, that there was a firm dome up there holding back the waters. That's the biblical view. Um, now, I want you to hear what John Walton says about this. The Israelites received no revelation to update or modify their scientific understanding of the cosmos. We know that the rakia is there, but, and, and, but God, you know, and God supposedly knew that as well. But he didn't ask them to update their, their view of the world. They didn't know that the stars were suns. They didn't know that the earth was spherical and moving through space. They didn't know that the sun was much further away than the moon or even further than the birds flying in the air. They believed that the sky was material, that the rakia was material, not vapor, solid enough to support the residence of the deity as well as to hold back waters. They thought that God and his temple was above the rakia. That's where heaven was and God lived. In these ways, and in many others, they thought about the cosmos in much the same way that anyone in the ancient world thought. So they shared all of this in common with their neighbors. And not at all like anyone today thinks. Nobody today thinks that there is a dome there. And here's the important sentence. And God did not think it important to revise their thinking. If God knows all things, he did not think it important to revise their thinking, but rather spoke in to their incorrect way of viewing the world. So again, this goes against our assumption that the facts of modern science should align with the Bible. If that's what you want to do, if you think that the Bible should align with modern science or teaches us science, then I think you need to take the whole Bible for what it is. Some people want to say, yes, God created in six literal days, but that's only one piece of the science of the Bible. There's much more. The people in the Bible believed that the earth was flat. They wrote that into the Bible. They believed that the earth was on pillars. This is mentioned in Genesis. This is mentioned in the Psalms. This is mentioned in Job. This is mentioned by the Apostle Paul, that the earth is on pillars, that the sun revolves around the earth, and that there's a hard dome called the rakia that's up there that holds back the waters of the sky. That is a scientific view of the world. And we know all of those things to be incorrect. And so when we just take one thing, six-day creation, and not the others, I think we're, we're doing a disservice. We're being a bit illogical. And so I, I think that's a wrong way of looking at the Bible, to look at it like a science textbook. Instead, I encourage us to look at what my friend Dennis calls the Bible as the message incident principle. The message incident principle. That the message of the Bible, that God is speaking in to the world using the science of the day. That's incidental to what he's saying. And this aligns with how God communicates all throughout the Bible. He's always coming into the world, entering the world of the people in order to communicate who he is. All these worldview questions, who people are, who God is, and what their place is in the story, and how they can live that out. This happens most notably in Jesus. When Jesus comes, he doesn't come as a 21st century man with all of our modern knowledge. He doesn't come, you know, with Yeezys and an iPhone and a bunch of, you know, COVID vaccine. He comes as a first century Jew to reach first century Jewish people. He enters into their worldview. 
You know, at one point Jesus says that the mustard seed is the smallest seed in the world. Now that's a scientifically untrue statement. You can go this afternoon if you'd like and, and try to find a mustard seed and see if you can find a smaller one. There are smaller seeds in the world that, uh, than, the small, than the mustard seed. We know this to be true. So Jesus is speaking into the science of the day. This is the question, like, can we then trust Jesus since he said this? Yes, of course, he's speaking into the science of the day in order to bring people into God's story. If you remember back to when we looked at the Gospel of John, this is what Jesus is doing. He's entering the stories of individuals in order to show them that God cares, that he meets them there, but then he's always drawing us back to these worldview questions, that there is a God, a God who created everything, a God that calls us to worship him and has made us in his image and is calling us to live a life of reflecting him into the world and saving faith through Jesus. This is what Jesus is doing and this is the God of Genesis 1 and what's happening there. God is speaking into the science of the day in order to show people who he is, to communicate with us that he is the God of the universe and he wants to dwell with us. So those are the three whys. Now, in summary, I just want to say this. The the Bible is our sacred text. It is God's word and it's authoritative. And the Bible teaches us all we need to know about salvation through Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior. And Genesis 1 teaches us that God is the God of everything, that he's the God of the entire world, that he created it all, and that he's, yes, God over science too. But the Bible is not in conversation with modern science. We don't have to try to reconcile those two things. And I would say it this way, for those of us who want to, like I, I, I did when I first started taking my faith seriously and like I do now, for those of us who want to take God's word seriously, we got to let it be what it is and not make it into something that it isn't, namely a science textbook. I think some of us want to double down and say it's everything. You know, there are um, no scientific errors in the Bible and that's the way that we know that it's true. No, we, the way that we know it's true is because it speaks about a God who stands behind it and spoke to those original people and speaks to you and I today and we experience him through Jesus who came and through the Holy Spirit and through our community, not by making it into a science textbook. That's overreaching. That's making the Bible and our faith into something that it is not. And we end up focusing on the wrong things and putting our energy into the wrong areas. And we double down on saying that there is a fight between science and faith. And like I said, that ends up pushing people away from the faith. It it ends up making us hold our faith in the wrong ways. And and lastly, it ends up keeping people from listening. When we double down on um, saying that science is all false and we can't trust any of it, we actually push people away from the faith then who are not open to hearing the God's word, God's word and the good news about Jesus. We put stumbling blocks in front of them that don't need to be there. And so let's stop. Let's not overreach. Evolution is not in competition with Genesis 1 because the Bible is not in conversation with modern science. But there's a warning here that we need to keep science from overreaching too. Science also, just like we could do with the Bible, we make it into something that it is not. Science can do the same thing uh, to the Bible. And there's two big ways that I think science does this. I just want to mention them really briefly. The one is way that science does this is it says that through our modern scientific instruments, we've gathered all this information and the evidence is in and there is no God and there's no reason to believe in him. Let me just give you one example. The biologist E.O. Wilson in his 2014 book said, the evidence is massive enough and clear enough to tell us this much. We were created not by a supernatural intelligence, but by chance and necessity. There's no evidence of a demonstrable de- destiny 
or purpose assigned to us, no second life vouchsafed for us at the end of the present one. We are completely alone. This is an example of overreaching. This person, uh, as far as I know, is brilliant in his uh, area of biology. I'm not taking anything away from um, his scientific uh, acumen, but he's overreaching to say what science cannot say, that there is no God, that there is no purpose to our world. Um, the, the philosophical world, word they would use for this is, is talking about uh, uh, our telos, our purpose. It's using a disteleological argument that there is no purpose to the world. And science can't say that. It's an example of overreaching. And, and it's what we would call scientism, which often gets smuggled into science. That the good work that scientists are doing about learning about our world and how things came into being, that they smuggle scientism in there and they start talking about why the world exists and if there is and isn't a God. And we need to be very careful when engaging with science that scientism is not smuggled in. We need to engage in calling it out. Um, and there are non-Christians who are doing this. It's not just that every scientist is doing this. Listen to Harvard paleontologist Stephen Jay Gold, who is not a Christian. He says this, I want to say to my colleagues, for the umpteenth millionth time, science cannot adjudicate the issue of God's possible superintendence of nature. We can neither affirm or deny it. We simply cannot comment on it as scientists. This is a wonderful statement by a person who is not a Christian, that, that the questions about the worldview are not to be judged by science. Don't let science overreach into that area. And we need to be careful. And this is really important when it comes to evolution, because evolution can also have scientism smuggled in, that there is no purpose to the world. Like um, Wilson said, that there's, it's just chance and random nature. For us as Christians, we believe that there is a God over everything. We may not have all the answers of how he did that through the process of evolution, but we need to also see what Genesis 1 is saying, that he created everything, that he is over everything, and that he's a very personal God. He wants to be with us. We are not all alone in the universe. Uh, there is someone who is, who is very close, a God who is close. So the evidence, that's one way that science can overreach. And briefly, I'll just mention the other one. For me, this one is more insidious because it's a story. It's a story of a growing up narrative. That when we were kids, you know, we went to Bible school uh, or Sunday school, we learned about this God who is kind of the God of children, these fairy tales. Now, as we get older and we're educated by science, we know better and we know that there's no God. So we leave those childish ways behind. So we evolve, as some might say, beyond belief. We leave, if you still believe you're acting as if you're a child. Um, in, in the um, National Geographic show Cosmos, uh, this is a great example of this, where um, um, some, some astrologists show us about the, or sorry, astronomers show us about the world. And, and they, in one of the episodes, they start with this tiny little baby. And they're explaining how people used to look at the world. They're talking about this baby, you know, when we, when we were like a baby, we looked up at the stars and we thought that they were gods and we thought they controlled the seasons. But now as we grow up into full-fledged adults, we have science and we don't need God anymore. And this is a story. It's not science. It's another way of uh, overreaching that science is overreaching by trying to tell a story over on top of science. And as Christians, we need to watch out for this and reject it to say that we actually have a different story. It's the story that we grow up, not by leaving behind our faith, but by rooting deep down, becoming like trees, rooting down into God and growing fruit to bless the world, as it says in Psalm 1. 
So those are examples of overreaching from science. And I want to just mention that overreaching from science from both ends is bad and has its consequences. Like I said, when I was in university, uh, I had a professor just stand up. It was like 9 a.m. in the morning. He stood up and just ranted about how Christians are idiots for like 10 minutes. Um, and I remember feeling uh, like the battle was on. And if you know psychology, it's like fight, flight, or freeze. And in that moment, I just froze. I wasn't prepared at 9 a.m. You know, I uh, hadn't had my fourth cup of coffee yet. I just wasn't prepared to do anything. And I just froze. I remember being shocked. But this is why we have the battle mentality. Like I said, Christians are responsible for creating it, but also so are scientists, or some scientists. And one of the ways this plays out in our world today is about vac through vaccine hesitancy. This is a very current issue that comes from viewing science and the Bible as in battle with each other. Christians are twice as likely to be vaccine hesitant, which shouldn't come as any surprise to those of us who understand that there might be, the world is perceived as a war between faith and science. So all of the reasons for vaccine hesitancy are very complicated, but I, I want to say that overreaching is, is part of it. Christians overreaching and saying that the Bible is modern science and modern science saying that the Bible has no place in people's lives if you're going to be a grown-up adult. Now, I'm not trying to give my opinion on vaccines, but I want to say this. Many of us can't understand why people would be vaccine hesitant. This is one of the reasons why. So what we need to do is create space to unpack this, to understand why people are. And, and I'm trying to do part of that by saying there doesn't need to be this battle between Genesis 1 and evolution, between faith and science. But I, I want us to give space to people who are vaccine hesitant, who are still living in this battle mode between faith and science. And, and I love to chat with you. I'm sure there's other people in our church would. If you're vaccine hesitant and you're trying to wonder about this relationship with faith and science, please check the links in, this, in the sermon notes, but I'd love to talk with you too. And for any of those uh, people in our community who are just frustrated that there are Christians who won't uh, get vaccinated, I encourage you also to make space, to listen to their stories and to understand maybe they've had experiences like I did in my first and second year psych classes that have caused them to have this battle mentality. So overreaching has its, uh, has its consequences and we need to be very careful of it. Finally, let's talk about the way forward. What are, we, what are we now to do? The first is very quickly, I'm just gonna reiterate what I've said, to understand the appropriate place. Um, that the, uh, Theologians and scientists have talked about having a two book approach. That the Bible is God's word. All of it, including Genesis 1, we learn the story of God and it is our story. It is God's story that's passed on to us and we want to take it seriously. But we can also see that the book of nature is God's world as well. And that we can use it uh, to, we can, we can understand it, we can keep it, and we can um, walk into it with open hands. Here's what John Walton says. Evolution represents the current scientific consensus to explain many observations that have been made in paleontology, genetics, zoology, biochemistry, ecology, and so on. Whatever the scientific consensus is, he's saying, we can accept it as Christians. The question is how much of it is involved or what is involved in biological evolution runs counter to what I understand the biblical claims and theological realities to be. And he says, in the interpretation of the text that I've offered, very little found in evolutionary theory would be objectionable, though certainly some of the metaphysical claims of scientism remains unacceptable. So as people that are Christians, we can fully embrace God's word 
And we can also fully embrace the study of God's world through science. And just be careful that we don't overreach through scientism or through making the Bible into a science textbook, that we can work together to reveal God's word to us. The second thing I want us to see in our way forward is that we need to create space to share this story of the Bible with people today that have a modern scientific worldview. And this is what we see going on in the Bible. The second way forward that I want to mention is that we, we need to create space for people who have a modern scientific perspective to hear the good news of Jesus. This is one of the great sadnesses for me that people who um, see, think that there's a battle between faith and science, if they take science to be true, they don't get to hear the good news about Jesus. They don't get to meet this God that we see in Genesis 1 and live out what he calls for us to live out. So a couple of years ago, a friend uh, who also shares this sadness with me, we got together. He is a PhD in physics and is a professor at a university teaching science. And we just talked through how we might share the story of the Bible into uh, the worldview that we have today or into our scientific uh, perspective. And so in that, we tried to um, mimic what we see happening in Genesis 1, that they take this the relationship that they have with this eternal God and share it into their um, scientific perspective, ancient scientific perspective. That's what we see happening uh, in Jesus, that he comes and he speaks into the world that he's coming into. It's what we see happening in Acts 17 with Paul when he goes to the Areopagus and quotes their poets in order to draw them to, towards Jesus. So we tried to do something similar uh, with the evolutionary story and the story of the Bible. And this is our attempt. I'm going to share it with you. Now, I, I want to say at the outset, this is not, you know, um, a new set of scripture that we wrote or anything like that. It's an attempt. It's an attempt and an invitation for people to come to Jesus. So the, the world, or we as human beings, tell two types of stories or ask two kinds of questions. The first is, how did we come to be the way that we are? And this is answered by the voice of science in our world. And currently, science would say that through the slow development of increasingly complex uh, chemical and then biological structures and a long process of evolution, we see the extraordinary outcome that we do in front of us today. And that human beings occupy a very special place in this. We've evolved alongside of everything else and with animals, but right now we have uh, special capabilities that kind of put us at the top of the heap. We have things like technical and scientific skill and reason and relational capacities that are unique uh, in the world around us. There's a second set of questions that we ask though. So what does that all mean? And is there any reason and purpose? And is there anything that we're supposed to do with those special skills? And into this, uh, these set of questions, the Hebrew and Christian scriptures have something to say. That in, that in addition to all these amazing characteristics that we have, the Bible says that we're supposed to use those to reflect God into the world. That is our privilege to be made in the image of God. That's what we were created for, to reflect this uh, transcendent being into our world and bring the praises of the world back to him. So those two stories can work together, but the problem comes when we live outside of them. When we see the amazing capabilities that we have as human beings and the amazing status, and we use them as an ends to themselves rather than to worship God and as a reflection of the creator. We, we you might say, see ourselves as gods rather than God, the transcendent God that we meet in Genesis 1 as God. And this has terrible consequences. We, first of all, limit ourselves to mere animal survival instincts. We focused on, you know, 
our, our, our desires first and foremost above everything else. We focus on ourselves above other people. And we miss God's intention for our full humanity, full human flourishing, the picture of shalom that we see in the Bible, to know God, to know ourselves, to know each other, and to live um, in harmony with our world. And the attitude that we focus on ourselves really causes all the problems that we see in our world and the breakdown of each of these relationships. And the attitude of self-sufficiency, of self-worship, of seeing ourselves as the highest thing in the cosmos is what the Bible calls sin. That we miss the end goal of what it means to be human. That there's a step further that we need to go is to see something higher than us, namely this God who has created everything. And so into this story, a new human emerges. God becomes a person, the Bible says, 2,000 years ago in Jesus to show us a new way forward of what it means to be, um, to have this transcendent relationship with God. Jesus lives that, simply living beyond our biological survival and focusing on himself and reproduction. He lives a selfless life, reflecting the God of the Bible and what it means to be a human who reflects this selfless, humble God into the world. Jesus' transcendence over our evolutionary struggle is exemplified in the fact that he doesn't pass on his genetics to biological children. He's not focused on just carrying on his own life and his line before submitting to a physical death. Rather, he is raised to new life, and his resurrection is the great historical event in the, in the evolutionary story. We are able to break free of mere biological limitations and take on what the Bible calls the abundant life which is the completion of God's plan for our species. We can be made right with this creator and focus on more than just our own selves and our own lives. And this is the story that each of us is invited to. Evolutionary progress has happened so far on populations of individual without their awareness or their personal choice. But in this final step, the step through Jesus, each of us is invited to make a choice, to make a choice to see the true humanity in Jesus to see him as giving his life for us and to receive that for ourselves, putting us back into right relationship with this eternal God of the universe, that we can be made right by looking beyond ourselves. We look to Jesus to look beyond ourselves and be reconnected with this God that we are called to reflect into the world. So that's just a short example of this story. And maybe to you, that's the first time you've heard anything like this, the first time that you've heard anything in Christianity that makes sense. Love to chat with you, and I'm sure many others would as well. Maybe you have lots of questions about this, and how could we even talk about like this uh, on a Sunday morning at a church service? That's great. Let's keep in conversation together. But my, my heart and my desire in sharing this isn't to call us away from the biblical story or away from the God that we see in Jesus or in Genesis 1, but rather to call us back to remove, like I said, to clear the ground a little bit, that we might have space to hear what Genesis 1 has to say and space to meet the God who is there because Genesis 1 is our story and it doesn't have to be in conflict with modern science. Would you join with me as we close in prayer together? God, this um, may come across more as a lecture than anything else, I think, or as a, um, yeah, as a teaching, maybe more than a sermon. But I know that in my own life and in the life of many around me that this has been something that has really kept us from you. And instead, we want to draw near to you. That's the God we see in Genesis 1, a God who, who wants us to draw near, who wants to dwell with us. So I pray that you would take this, uh, that this ground clearing to be a space where we can now draw near to you more closely than we could before. For those of us who are maybe feeling anger or maybe fear or confusion, 
would you meet us and bring your peace and your calm? And would we also move closer to one another in conversation to think about this together?